0: Section 5 of The City of Din. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Amelia Chesley. The City of Din by Dan McKenzie. The sensibility to noise varies very much in different individuals. There is no doubt that in time we learn to ignore it, a happy acquisition which is rapidly secured when the noise is continuous or expected. Everybody, for example, has heard of the miller who could not sleep out of the sound of his mill wheels, and everybody, I suppose, has had the curious experience of waking up when the bedroom clock stops ticking. In some of the hotels in Paris, they have a clock in every bedroom, each clock being electrically actuated from a central power station, and the minion of the devil who invented the process has so arranged the mechanism that the clocks are silent, save and except at the minute intervals, which are announced by a loud, single, solitary tick, clocks that tick only once a minute. And moreover, you cannot stop one without deranging the whole circuit and bringing every clock in the building to a standstill. If you are slightly deaf, if you are a sound sleeper, if your sensibilities are obtuse, well and good. But if you are endowed with a delicate perception, if your sense of hearing is acute, if your brain sleeps on a hair-trigger, then I warn you to avoid those hospices of torment as you would the devil himself. Now, it is the irregularity and unexpectedness of the motor horn that makes a London house so unrestful, wherefore I inveigh against it. I once knew a man who kept a small drapery shop in one of London's great thoroughfares, where the thunder of the traffic goes on unceasingly day and night, save during the wee small hours aunt the toile. Here above the shop he lived, and in course of time he saved enough money to enable him to retire. On giving up business, he bought a small villa in which to spend his remaining years, not, as you might expect, in some peaceful suburban nook but in another equally noisy high road. "'Because,' he explained, when I appeared surprised, "'it is so much more cheerful where there is some stir. Acclimatized as he was to racket, this perverted man would have been bored to death by quietude and an absence of auditory incident. All the same, there is something to be said for his point of view. I remember once experiencing the absence of auditory incident myself with a curious mental effect.' During a holiday on the Lago Maggiore one autumn a few years ago, it was my custom to leave the margin of the lake and to plunge into the labyrinth of chestnuts and vineyards that clothe the mountain sides above Baveno. Here, especially in the twilight, I became aware of a sense of mystery and eeriness among those sombre and lonely glades. With nature holding her breath, a vague expectancy stole into the mind so that if Pan and his rout of nymphs and satyrs had started out of the shadows, the apparition would scarce have surprised me. Even a little sound, like the thud of a chestnut burr falling upon the ground, was almost sufficient to explode the train of suggestion that the antecedent mental processes had laid. It is, I imagine, this expectancy that gives birth and being to ghosts and apparitions and the expectancy itself is, without doubt, dependent in its turn upon the withdrawal of the wanted flow of gross sense impressions from brain accustomed to their continual influx. The mind is tense and vacant, the tension being due to the vacancy. In similar surroundings at home in England, the sensation, or rather the absence of sensation, is less noticed, possibly because the feeling of cold on the skin which was absent in the warmer South, the occasional hail of a man, the bark of a dog, or the distant murmur of a village, supply enough of nerve incident and movement to prevent this curious and not altogether pleasant abstraction of the outer world. The abstraction is not altogether pleasant, for as the classic Callisthenes of advertisement fame says, the ear is particularly sensitive to the effects upon it of solitude and the reverse. In a large building, the sound of one's own footsteps, where there is no other sound within hearing, is disturbing, eerie, almost terrible. Who can walk the silent corridors of a great museum, the deserted aisles of a cathedral, or the empty floor of a department store without experiencing a certain vague uneasiness? But where the sound of many footsteps is blurred into one continuous undercurrent of sound, this feeling changes into one of subconscious safety. The experience is, of course, universal. All of us have, at times, been startled by the sudden and mysterious sounds that break the silence in a house after everybody else has gone to bed and the place is shut up for the night. A resounding crack from the dark corner cupboard, a rustling movement in the empty hall, a mutter or a whisper as if the family ghosts were holding a midnight colloquy under their breath on the landing. All very natural, no doubt. But there is indeed a strange significance, even in certain everyday sounds, that almost amounts to mystery. The crunching of the gravel, by carriage wheels, for example, always seems to convey some deep portentous meaning, as if like the knocking at the gate in Macbeth, it marked the arrival of change, the advent of the future. Obvious enough, at a wedding, it strikes to the heart at a funeral but even in everyday life, it brings eager, expectant faces to the windows. One of the Belgians who had fled from his country on the invasion of the Germans told me a story that illustrates this point. After having left Malines on the first threat of attack upon that city by the enemy, he and his wife, hearing that the Germans had not yet entered the town, returned secretly to their home to get some clothing for their provision in exile. When they had left a few days before, nothing had been damaged, but in the interval the Germans had been shelling the city, and on their return the fugitives found that all the windows of the houses had been smashed, the streets being littered with splinters of broken glass. Having reached their home in safety, they bundled together a few odds and ends they required, piling them upon a wheelbarrow for transport. Then they set off again, trundling their barrow through the empty streets in the dead of night, and the narrator said the skittering noise made by the wheel as it passed over the broken glass left such an impression upon his mind that never again in all his life would he be able to forget that sound. My friend Dr. James Donnellan told me another apt and interesting story. His maternal grandfather, who died in 1871, aged 104 years, happened to be in Paris during the Great Revolution and was in the crowd in front of the Tuileries when the king and queen were brought back from Varennes after their vain attempt to escape. He used to say that though the Place de la Revolution was packed with people, and though he was some distance from the Berlin containing the royal family, the stillness of the crowd, broken only by the tramp of the horses, the grating of the wheels and the jingling of the harness made the deepest impression on him. In this connection, also, the following extract from a letter describing the experiences of one of my friends may be cited. There is a strange emotion, he writes, to which I am at times subject. It always comes when I am listening to a play in the theater. As I sit wrapped in the story unfolding itself before me, a door opens onto the street, and the roar of the traffic becomes audible for a moment." In contrast with the mimic life in which I have been immersed, I feel then as if the outer world were asserting itself with emphasis and dignity, the emphasis and dignity of reality. And at that moment the deep significance of life impresses itself upon my attention, engendering a peculiar emotion of almost tear-compelling intensity, and yet impossible of any other expression. In times of tense public interest or excitement, also one may now and again experience a somewhat similar tingle of expectation while awaiting news of the impending event. This is especially noticeable at night, when in the dark and silence of the streets a window is rattled up, or a door banged, and we hear strange voices with a tremor of excitement in their tones, Or when from away across the darkened skies a confusion of shouts and cries falls upon the ear. We then experience the strain and quiver of feeling, shot with a thread of fear, through which the mind passes as we stand in the antechamber of time, awaiting the birth of great events. An analytical examination of any of those, and similar incidents and experiences, will show that while the impressiveness of the sound is due partly, no doubt, to its character and associations, it owes the greater part of its value to the fact that it is a silence-breaking sound. The silence it is that constitutes the background against which the sound stands out, so strangely vivid. Emphasis, that is to say, is imparted to it by the contrast. Walking along a country road on a dark night, we always keep our eyes fixed upon any light that may show itself. In other words, like darkness, silence is unwelcome to the mind, even to a mind jaded and worn by the auditory jangle of our city of Din. For although it is true that after a busy day in the roaring streets, one may at first greet with pleasure the restfulness of dead silence, nevertheless it is a fact that the pleasure of the relief is soon followed by a sense of uneasiness and strangeness from which one is glad to escape. The mind abhors a vacuum." This matter has been examined more or less scientifically. Dr. Victor Dassault relates that he was once inside a chamber of silence designed by Professor Zwartemäker of Utrecht, and the absolute stillness of it he found intolerable. I had a similar sensation, he goes on to say, while traveling in Norway within the polar circle. There sounds disappear more and more as we ascend towards the north. There are no singing birds, and the population being scanty, one remains for hours and sometimes for whole days without hearing a sound, and that is very disagreeable. The same effect is obtained in the depth of a large pine forest, and it is this silence coupled with the dark foliage that gives to those woods their somber and funereal aspect. So that although this book is written in the hope of reducing noise, I do not in its place offer silence as a desideratum. Silence means solitude. End of section 5.